and uh, let's bow our heads to pray. Uh, Lord God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd apply uh, your word to our hearts this evening and make us more like Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, do please uh, find uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. Uh, Story is all laid out for us. Pages 314 and 315. And just kind of keep, keep that page open uh, for a while, if you would. I, um, but I want to, to begin somewhere else uh, with another book. Uh, it's September. For so many of us, the summer is over. We've had our holidays Uh, We've lain on the beach, and um, seeing the format of the service, as Will had prepared it, I thought, well, there's no no chance for you uh, to talk to us, so I wanted you to um, uh, let us know what books you have enjoyed reading uh, over the summer. Now, this is church, it is Sunday, and so you'll be saying to yourself, he's probably wanting me to say how to pray more effectively. No, I'm not, actually. I just want to know... Whatever it was you, you chose to read. In fact, let's, let's specifically exclude godly reading. It doesn't mean that your reading has to be positively ungodly. We'll get to ungodliness in a moment or two. Um, uh, but I just thought it would be worth asking. What you read? Have you actually read anything? <laughs> oh, okay. Number one ladies detective. Which volume? Well, I'm going through them. Okay, you're going through them. Okay. Unseen academicals. <laughs> um, unseen academicals. By Terry Pratchett. By Terry Pratchett. Okay. Oh, in that case, that's all right then. It sounded quite off-putting for a moment. Okay. Anyone else? The pilgrimage of Harold Fry. Okay, that's all right. I'll let you off then. <coughs> Diane? We, oh, sorry, was it, was it Margaret? I've been rereading some Agatha Christie. Oh, rereading Agatha Christie. Yeah, well, that's always good, isn't it? Do you, do you ever solve... Where do you, how can you... Do you have to leave it long enough till you've forgotten who did it? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, right. What, 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 Hunger Games. Okay, Sophie? Lord of the Rings. Oh, what would be summer without Lord of the Rings? Any others on this side? Ole Miz, in English. Okay. Oh well. Well, all that's uh, all that's good stuff. Um, uh, you, you you have been you've been very good, haven't you? It's it's it's, it's all quite uh, good stuff. I mean, none of you seem to have picked up those sort of large print um, paperbacks um, that you can buy at the airport. Um, when you haven't got anything else to read. The ones with, you know, sun, sea, sand, and, um, and, uh, and other things in. Real bodice rippers. Um, uh, I, I read Map Addict, because I'm very sad. Good book. Recommend it. 
Uh, now today we come to a good holiday read of a bodice ripper. Uh, beauty, bathing, battle, Bathsheba, and a well-ripped bodice. That's the story that uh, Elle read for us from chapter 11. And what's not here is what amazes me. See, this is, this is a morality tale. And uh, we get to verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, if it's a morality tale, what we would expect, given all that unfolds, is that we, since we know it's the Bible and therefore someone's going to get their comeuppance, uh, we'd expect the, the story uh, to have enormous issues to take with the fact that David sees a woman who's very beautiful uh, and uh, sleeps with her. There is almost nothing, however, in what Nathan the prophet has to say later on that says you're a bad boy for sleeping with Bathsheba. Uh, actually, this reading, in fact, our whole series, has come from a kind of summer collection recommended for the summer months uh, in the Church of England. And what's missed out is interesting. Because you do notice we stopped at verse 15 of uh, chapter 11 and picked up at the start of chapter 12. Now, look at how Nathan's condemnation is, is, is focused Look at how it carries on in chapter 12, um, uh, after he said, you're a man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? What's next? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And nearly everything that has been in the passage we missed out, from verse 16 through to the end of uh, chapter 11, has been about Uriah the Hittite. We get the bodice ripper in the bits we read, but we don't get the betrayal of Uriah. And yet the text, from verses 16 to 27, and then from uh, where we stopped at the end of 7a, you're the man, through to the end of uh, verse 10, the text tells us that it's the betrayal of Uriah that's the main event here, not the fact that David saw Bathsheba and fancied her. At one level, just in our own age, we need to register that. It's not what we expect. It, it's almost offensive. So much do we not expect it that it's, we probably didn't even notice that this is not in the end a story about sex. Although what matters in the story happens because of sex. As indeed does what happens later. There's a terrible judgment on David and his family, but there's a grace and a mercy in the birth of Solomon. What matters is that David took what belonged to Uriah and sacrificed Uriah himself to his, that's David's, purposes. Now, we don't like to think of wives belonging 
to husbands like that. It's probably not one of the evenings that takes place on the marriage course. But they did then, and that's the point and the pivot of the story here. David sacrificed Uriah to bring about his own selfish purposes. The focus is Uriah, not Bathsheba. And along the way, let's notice one other thing, by the way. It's Uriah the Hittite. Keeps being mentioned in the bit we missed out in 11 and then in what we heard in in, uh, chapter 12. And what uh, matters about that is that Uriah is a foreigner. David, uh, if you were here last week, you'll have heard uh, Alex Irving talking about how David is very cannily putting a nation together. Now, because I'm a map addict, uh, and you know I've done this to you before, uh, turn to the back of your Bibles and see whether you're one of the lucky ones that has a Bible, a a Bible, a map. Turn to the bit that may have the division of Canaan. And if there's uh, a couple of you next to each other that uh, don't have a map, then sort of find... It's randomly distributed, as far as I can tell. Uh, uh, David is anointed as king three times. You'd think once would be enough, but he gets three anointings. Um, The first of those happens in uh, Bethlehem. Uh, You can see in the little territory of Benjamin, uh, the town Jerusalem. Bethlehem is just south, about uh, maybe six miles south of uh, uh, Jerusalem. And for the purposes of this story, which happens in a very, very tight range, uh, that's the north. So the first time that happens, he's anointed at uh, Bethlehem. Secondly, he's anointed by the southern tribes in the town of Hebron which is a bit further south still. The third time he's anointed, it's again at Hebron, but this time it's all the tribes of the south and the north coming together. But like any nation building, uh, these kind of um, exercises in, in putting a nation together end up depending on those who aren't in the nation at all. You may or may not know. Uh, the Battle of Waterloo was won, uh, not by the Brits, uh, but by the Germans, because uh, we didn't have enough troops, so the only way we could get uh, ourselves to a victory was to pay the Prussians, and so it was run by Prussian mercenaries uh, on our behalf as Brits. Uh, So we paid, and this is normal through most warfare down history, the, the, the winning side, well, on the losing side, we pay mercenaries. The ark is, has now moved. We'll get back to Uriah the Hittite in a moment, but I don't want to lose my map because it's really exciting. The ark, as, as the kind of symbol of God's presence at the heart of the new nation, is not in Hebron, but has been moved, or is on its way to being moved, to the new territory of Jerusalem, which David has captured. 
And he's captured it so that neither the north nor the south can feel that their noses have been put out of joint. He wants a new place to say this is ours together. It had been returned from the Philistines uh, 20 years before to a kind of halfway territory. It's been in the home of another foreigner. And since last week, where Nathan the prophet promised uh, David a house, that God would build him a house, um, David has enjoyed conquests. And they've run, and I'm going to do it clockwise. If you uh, uh, look at uh, sort of Jerusalem, uh, Hebron, over to the west, uh, you've got uh, the Philistines on the west coast. Uh, there's a territory called Zobah, which is north of Damascus. Uh, that's way up to the north, further than our map goes. There's Damascus itself, which is practically as far north on the map as you can go. Uh, there's Ammon, which is northeast of the Dead Sea. It's in pale grey on our map. There's the Moabites, which is to the east of the Dead Sea. And there's the Edomites, uh, which is to the south of the Dead Sea. Now, he's actually kind of gone all around the territory, winning more territory. And he didn't achieve that with purebred Jewish followers of Yahweh. Uriah was a Hittite. That's one of the peoples who was overcome in the early conquest of Hebron, and presumably put to work, just like the Britons were by the Romans. He was therefore only one step up from being a slave, even though he was a warrior. And that meant, this is why I've gone all through that, that he was deserving of special care under God's law as a vulnerable person. He may have been a good general, a good warrior, a good soldier, but if you had those people in your care, you were to protect them because they didn't have the natural protection of being among God's people. Foreigners were protected. And so that's why Nathan, when it comes to this story, and I think you can probably go back to pages 3, 14, 15 now, that's why Nathan can portray him in the story as a poor man. He was well regarded, was Uriah. He was very honest. He wouldn't give in to all the tricks that David was trying to play. He remained faithful to the men in his army. He remained faithful to Bathsheba. But he was deserving of special protection and care. Alex said last week that we saw David moving from being the the good character to being a rather mixed picture. Now he's flat out wicked. He's adulterous, covetous, duplicitous, and murderous. Think of all those uh, failed... uh, attempts there are on David's part to pin this pregnancy on Uriah. David has taken what was not his to take. He's ignored the proper boundaries. He's put himself at the center of everything, exactly as Samuel warns the people that any king would do. Now, let's pause. What's the Old Testament about? Real question. What's the Old Testament about? Thank you. Jesus. Why do we say that? It's obvious that he's not on page one of Genesis, but he's there on page one of John's Gospel, which rewrites Genesis. In the beginning was the Word. And although Jesus isn't the first word in the book of Genesis, he is the first word in the thought of the Father. Nothing that happens in Genesis happens before Jesus, who says, before Abraham was, I am. As the reading from Colossians said last week, 
All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and the living one. Never allow yourself to forget that he is the center. The Old Testament points to him. The New Testament speaks of him. Then the New Testament leads from him. Jesus is the center. Now, you, you may have heard me uh, tell this before. Uh, I, I tell it a, a number of times because I think it's uh, worth, uh, the, the point of the story is worth saying. Uh, the uh, teacher in Sunday school uh, says, uh, now children, uh, what, uh, we're going to hear a story today. Now, what is it that has long ears and fur and lives down a hole? A little girl puts her hand up and uh, uh, teacher says, yes, Felicity, what is it? And Felicity says, well, miss, it's Sunday and it's Sunday school, so the answer must be Jesus, but it sounds like a rabbit to me. Uh, and, and, and just to, to emphasize the point that that sort of thing really happens this morning, um, I, 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 wanted, I wanted the kids to complete, um, get the idea of completing a, a sentence. And I, and I said, Mary had... And I wanted a little lamb, and I got a boy. Um, and I, I want us to learn, actually to learn, a verse. Uh, would you please turn to Mark uh, chapter 10? And verse 45. I'm going to treat you uh, like eight-year-olds, because it's never a bad thing to learn scripture. Uh, Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Uh, Page 1015. Okay. Uh, Let's uh, read it together. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, you with me by about the fifth word, but let's try it again from the first, from the beginning. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, now I'm going to put you on best behavior. Um, Keep your fingers ready to flick the Bible closed, but you're going to open it again there, so kind of, you know, just kind of, uh, and we're going to, um, let's see, uh, how will we do this? Um, uh, let's, let's get to, uh, did not come to be, to the end of that line, and then flick it closed and see how far we can go, okay? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Very good. Do it again. Um, and let's uh, flick over before we get to the word son of man. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Shall we try it all together without, without looking? For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Good. Uh, I I do this because I want to make a contrast between David and Jesus. 
David puts himself at the center and sacrifices another to bring about his purposes. God, in Jesus, if we were listening to that verse, puts others at the center and sacrifices himself to bring about his purposes. I'll say that again. David puts himself at the center and sacrifices another to bring about his purposes. Jesus puts others at the center and sacrifices himself to bring about his purposes. God's horror at the story expressed in in Nathan's accusation is because what David has done. And this is the David who was described, if you were here at the very beginning. David's the man who's a man after God's own heart. This David, what he's done, is a precise, almost surgically precise, inversion of God's heart. He's put himself at the center and sacrificed another. Why is this story here? In the, in the purposes of the whole of Scripture, The story is here so that we realize what sin is like, what sin does, how it creeps up on us, how overwhelmingly it is opposed to God's will, so that what God has to do about it is overwhelmingly powerful. And and the story for tonight is pretty much over. It serves its purpose, but I do want to turn to ourselves. What is sin in your life and mine? it'll be exactly the same. When we put ourselves at the centre and are willing to sacrifice others to bring about our purposes. Even, I gather, an addiction to maps can be sinful because the author records how he used to shoplift them as a boy. Sin has all kinds of definitions. I remember being very deeply saddened many years ago when I took a bunch of uh, younger guys through uh, some material, and I asked them what they thought sin was, and their biggest definition was a failure to pray and read the Bible. That's not the definition. It's much more likely to be something like when you want me time, and you just can't be bothered to give time to this or that person, time or attention, affection or effort, that they are due. And we need to consider, therefore, what Jesus' response on the cross is to that sin in us. The story goes to the heart of sin. And it takes us via Nathan to the heart of God. God says, I gave you everything, but you had to take what you hadn't got. And you sacrificed Uriah in the process. You are the man, says Nathan. In verse 7. In John 19 and verse 5, Pontius Pilate presents to the crowds a Jesus who's flogged and beaten and crowned with thorns and said, Here is the man. The one is again the reversal of the other. David, the king at the center of his kingdom, everything's at peace. He's uh, entered into his victories, he's able to snap his fingers and get what he wants. Versus Jesus the king, not yet in his kingdom, about to have his fingers snapped, giving everything he's got. This story looks forward to the cross, 
where God will take care of the sins that enable Nathan to say to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. Yeah, it hasn't happened yet, but it's coming, and it's only on the basis of the cross that Nathan gets to say, the Lord has dealt with it. The cross is bloody and in every way a horror, and that's what it takes to take away the sin of a man who fancied a woman bathing when the man is a king and can get what he wants. What would we be like if we could get what we wanted. The truth, of course, is that Jesus has given his life as a ransom for many. The cross did deal with sin, and Jesus is Lord. But I think the story is here tonight to remind us of all those moments that we wish tonight, as we came in, that we could undo. The moments we would want to change that were our own fault. It's not here, I don't think, to bring the world to see what horror sin represents. It's here to bring us to see what sin costs God. Even a relatively minor sin by the standards of our world. After all, let's face it, all that happened here was that a guy had sex with a woman to start it off. I want to uh, leap away from the story for a moment and then work my way back. This week has seen a great deal of uh, work and effort to attend to a problem. Some of you will have heard, not perhaps all of you, uh, that Nigel Chapman, a member of our morning congregation mostly, um, had a serious bicycle accident uh, last Sunday during a charity bike ride on the south coast. Uh, He's in Southampton General Hospital. It seems to be some good news today that he'll be moved from there, uh, we hope, this week. You can imagine what a terrible struggle that's been for the family. But I can stand here and talk about that and the challenges that this week have have, uh, brought. Backs are fragile. We know they have problems. They can have accidents. We can pray for Nigel and Rosie and the family. But along the way this week, I've also heard other stories from other people that I can't talk about and they're not going to talk about. And they're not all in our own congregation. Stories of sin and its damage. And it's made me shine a bit of light on my own life. There's lots of things I could talk about, about my own life. I can talk about my reading habits over the summer. But there's some things I'm certainly not going to talk about with all of you and probably with very few of you at all. Sin matters. And we hide it. It abuses the vulnerable, dirties the sinner, harms the witness, appalls the father, and costs Jesus his life. I think this story is a gift to us so that we renew our determination by God's own sweet grace that though we know we may fail and fall, still we want to stand upright and holy and clean. That we want the vulnerable to be safe and see Christ in us. That we want our witness to be powerful and our songs to be merry. That we simply want to please God. 
And it begins this story, not with David, but with Jesus, who comes to give his life as a ransom for many, so that when this story happens, we can say with David in chapter 12, I have sinned against the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize before you uh, that we are sinners and that you planned our salvation in Christ before the foundation of the world, choosing us as your people. And all that we read in these stories of the Old Testament is to lead us up to the need for Jesus You know the sin in our hearts that we will never talk about. The things we hope nobody finds out. The things that we hope there isn't a Nathan around to tell us tell anyone about. But only because of Jesus can David say. I have sinned and expect any kind of mercy from a holy God. So we throw ourselves on your mercy and we ask you to make us more disturbed by our own sinfulness than we have been up till now. Increase our longing to be holy before you. Jesus Christ may be glorified. Amen.